If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me this evening to 1 John 4. It's going to be a few minutes before we walk through a couple of these verses. And really, we're not even going to walk through them this evening. We'll save that uh, for next week. 1 John is an epistle intended to bring uh, about in the lives of believers fullness of joy. Uh, This is to be secured by keeping Christ's commandments and by loving the brethren. Throughout the epistle, John has been warning about the ideas which operate in fundamental contradiction to this fullness of joy through obedience and love. All of which are summarized in the concept of walking in darkness... Manifest through saying we have no sin, or through loving the world. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us, or through hating the brethren, rejecting them, placing them in lower in favor or value than others or other things. And as John is warned about these things, he's specifically focused in on a subset of men who were influencing these who were reading this letter. It would seem they were teaching these errors, the various errors that we just talked about, loving the world, uh, hating the brethren, rejecting the brethren, uh, even the idea that we have no sin or that we have not sinned. And it seems as though they were teaching these things, though they were claiming at the same time to represent God and perhaps to some degree represent Christ as well. And I say to some degree because it seems very apparent from both 1 John 2 and then here as we get into 1 John 4 that um, they were denying various aspects of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we're actually walking through the text next week. But today, John is going to connect uh, the concept that, he, that we saw, the warning that we saw in John chapter 2, 1 John 2, this warning of those who are not of Christ, but rather are antichrist. And he's going to connect that to a concept called spirits. But before we get into this idea where John is going to exhort us to try the spirits, whether they are of God, I want us to think through what it means to try the spirits. What are the spirits? What is this spiritual idea of which John is speaking? How do we think about it? Where do we categorize it? And as he, as he connects this concept of Antichrist to what we'll see in our passage today as the spirit of Antichrist. What does that mean, the spirit of Antichrist? And and as we then step into our application today, it's almost going to be kind of a a last warning, and maybe warning is the wrong word. Uh, If you've ever been on uh, on a road that's about to turn into a toll road, Right? You'll see all of these signs that say this is the last road that you can turn off coming up before you are charged to get on this road. And once you're on the road, then you're going to be paying a toll. So you see all of these, these signs. And in one sense, as we consider this idea of the spiritual and we think through it this evening, I want to give you one more exhortation. Maybe you don't need it. Maybe no one needs it. Maybe everyone has already gotten to the place where you're in good shape here. But one more exhortation to make sure that we are rightly aligned because next week, as we consider what it means truly to try the spirits, whether they are of God, what we're going to be reminded is that If you want to progress to this 1 John 4 idea of trying the spirits, whether they are of God, you really have to have already solved, you have to have already settled yourself into 1 John 2, 1 John 1, the concepts that we've already talked about. John's building, and we'll see that pretty clearly this evening. So 
Before we get into 1 John 4, let's talk about the idea of spirits. There's one primary word which is used for and translated spirit in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both of them are actually the word for wind or breath. And then by extension, it would be the mind or this concept of spirit. The idea of wind or breath as actually the primary root word for the concept from which we get spirit is the the idea of something which is unseen, but that has a direct effect on the things that are around it. In the case of the wind, the effects of the air are felt upon things with which it interacts, right? You, You know it's windy not because you see the wind. You know it's windy because you see the effects of the wind, You hear the wind through the trees. You hear the wind through the leaky seals in your windows. You hear the wind, you you feel the wind on your skin as it passes across your nerves. You don't see the wind. The wind is an unseen force that you understand through its effects, not through its substance. In the case of breath... Uh, It's a very similar idea, but we uh, recognize that breath is the effect of air generally heard through the effect that the air is having upon the vocal folds as it passes through them. So you have all of these uh, vocal folds in your your throat, and as as air is passing over those in various ways, as you're manipulating that muscle, it is changing the sound that is coming out of your mouth, and that's the idea of breath. Once again, if I were to just be breathing, unless it's somehow impacting those vocal folds, you're not hearing anything. You're only hearing it if it's passing over something. You're not feeling it unless I'm breathing on you, which is weird, so we don't do that, right? So this is a force that is only understood, seen through its effects. And it's very similar with the concept of spirit in the Bible, which is why the word is used as such. Since the beginning of biblical revelation, apart from actually referencing the actual wind or someone's actual breath, which is actually somewhat rare for the word, this word, both Old Testament and New Testament, is the word used to describe an unseen force that is acting in this world. Forces which are not seen, but whose effects are direct and obvious. And so today we're going to see two interrelated but absolutely distinct categories that both fall under this idea of spirit. There are many who might parse the concept of spirit more than this, and and that's fine, but I think that these two distinctions are good, are valid, and through them we can get the general idea of spirit in a a more simple matter. So the two distinctions uh, to the biblical concept of spirit that I'd like us to think through this evening are first... Spirit as a personal being which exists outside of the material world but obviously has an effect on the material world. And then second, spirits as an unseen force that exerts itself upon the material world. Let's consider each of them in turn. So we begin with the concept of a spirit as a personal being which exists outside of the material world. And take note there, I underlined it for you, of the word personal. Because it's the operative word here. When we say something is personal in our modern vernacular, our modern English, what we typically mean by something being personal is that it's private or it inspires some sort of emotional response. Well, what did you do this weekend? Oh, that's personal, right? The idea is that's private. That's something for me to know, not for you to know. And that's often how we use the word personal. But the idea can also mean something that is related to a 
person. And you think about the legal definition of a person and in various states and in various municipalities and in various uh, countries around the world, the idea of what a person is might be different. And that has legal ramifications upon various things as far as rights and whatever else it might be. But when we think of something that is a person, as a general rule, a person is something which has personality, which possesses the qualities of being a person. And the generally accepted idea of the qualities that make up a person is that they have intelligence, emotion, and will. The idea of intelligence being that they can communicate one with another as a general rule, um, that, that they have a, a knowledge of, um, uh, of themselves and their surroundings, uh, that they're able to relate themselves to the world around them, uh, even the idea that they have an a understanding of the concept of God and of, of, of morality. Then we also see the idea of emotions, and, and we're familiar with what emotions are, and then will, volition, the ability to make volitional choices that you're not just like animals are, stimulus and response, but rather there is a volitional element uh, to one's life. And specifically, as we consider that idea of intelligence, as I said, the, the ability to understand and to orient ourselves to the world around us and to God. And so we see that humans would, be, would fall under the idea of personhood, but not just humans. As we look into the Word of God, we find any number of times where various spirits, the word spirit, is connected to something with personality. We find that angels and demons are called spirits. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, quoting from Psalm 104, Verse 4, Psalm 104, verse 4, saying, Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers of flaming fire. So we see that angels are spirits. We know that angels, uh, that, that, that demons are fallen angels, that Satan, Lucifer, was one of those as well. And so we recognize that angelic beings, be they the elect angels of God or be they demonic spirits, uh, demonic angels, fallen angels, uh, are, are, are spirits. But we also know that angels are persons. As we walk through the word of God, we find that angels qualify as persons, not humans, but persons, right? They have intelligence, emotions, and will. They possess those characteristics of personhood. Satan and demons possess the characteristics of personhood. Uh, elect angels possess the characteristics of Personhood, And so as we think through this idea of, of spirits, we find that there are many times in the word of God where an angel will be referenced, an angel will interact with someone, uh, uh, we'll, we'll see a, a demonic interaction as it relates to Satan, maybe even Satan with another angel, such as when Satan and, and Michael the archangel contend for the body of Moses. And in each one of these times, we are seeing two spirits interacting, those spirits bearing the marks of personhood, and so the idea being that a spirit can be an actual physical or, material, or, or spiritual being, something which uh, has an essence to it, a personality to it, something that is not just ethereal, but rather is uh, um, objective, right? Satan is a person. He's not just a thought. He's not just a metaphor. He's not just an allegory. Uh, he's not everywhere. He's not in everything. We might say that his, foot, his fingerprints are in a lot of things in this world. But Satan is a person. Angels are persons. Demons are persons. They possess emotion, intelligence, and will. They are an entity, though they may not have a physical body. 
We also find personhood in all three members of the Godhead. That though each of the three members of the Godhead is called a spirit uh, uh, in, in the Word of God, well, let me say it this way. We find that all three are called a spirit in the Word of God. Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 24, says that God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus there referencing God the Father as God there, saying that God himself is a spirit. We also recognize that the Holy Spirit is a spirit. It's in his name. Uh, there are, are some questions we could walk through it. I'm not going to do it this evening for the sake of time. Uh, but we have walked through before and we'll walk through again at some point uh, where we understand the personhood of the Holy Spirit. But we find in the account of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts um, that Peter says that, that Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit of God. And we see that, that the Holy Spirit of God himself is considered a person unto whom one can lie, uh, uh, unto whom one can uh, seek to deceive, though of course he was not nor would be deceived. And so we, we see these ideas whereby the Holy Spirit, like the Father, possesses personality, possesses emotions, intelligence, and will. And in that we see that the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, is a spirit and also a person. And then, of course, Jesus Christ as well. Uh, we do not have a great deal of um, insight into the nature of the pre-incarnate uh, second person of the Trinity. We believe that that pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity was the angel of the Lord uh, uh, in the Old Testament. Again, I'm not going to go into this evening why it is we believe that the angel of the Lord can be comfortably connected to the second person of the Trinity. Uh, but for, for the sake of uh, just a general overview we find that there were various manifestations in the Old Testament of one who was himself God, but who, uh, who um, expressed himself to others. We think of Moses at the burning bush, where that burning bush was a flame, but it was not being consumed. And when Moses came up to that burning bush, uh, a voice from that bush said, that take off your shoes, for you are on holy ground. The idea there is that that ground had been consecrated through the presence of the one who was manifest in the bush. Well, that's not something that we typically see of standard angels. Standard angels did not demand any sort of worship whatsoever. As a matter of fact, they refused worship in every manifestation that they had. They said, no, don't worship me, worship God. And yet this bush wanted worship. And so we would recognize that bush to be God in a manifestation. Well, why the second person of the Trinity? Because the Bible says that no man has seen the Father and lived. And so if the Father is manifesting himself, that wouldn't make any sense. But if the second person of the Trinity is manifesting himself, that does make sense. And then as we think through what that looks like, we understand that the Father, as it relates to the Godhead, the Father would be generally considered to be the will of the Godhead. The Son would be the enactor of the Godhead, and the Spirit would be the empowerer of the Godhead. And so if there was going to be one of the Godhead directly and visibly interacting with people in the Old Testament, it would make the most sense that that would be the second person of the Trinity. And so we see this idea. However, that's somewhat a conflation, but we certainly know that Jesus, having taken on flesh, Jesus, uh, in, uh, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the, the, the second person of the Godhead in flesh, had a spirit uh, because he was human. Right? And humans have spirits. Of course, Jesus saying in Luke 23, 46, as he was being crucified, 
Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then after this, he gave up the ghost. So we know that all three persons of the Trinity, of the Godhead, also had a spirit or were spirit. And in that they are spirit and person. What we're doing here is we're formulating the recognition that a spirit in the Bible can be a personal being existing outside of the material world, interacting with the material world. So when you read the word spirit in your Bible, it might mean that. It could mean this idea of of a spirit being, an angel, a demon, uh, God himself, Satan. And then, of course, finally, we think of humans in this regard. Now, we are primarily defined as humans by the material aspect of our bodies, that we are material. We interact with the material world because we are material. And the Bible is not abundantly clear on the interaction between the body, soul, and the spirit as it relates to our personality. However, we also recognize that humans definitely have a spirit and that we are, in that sense, eternal and spiritual beings, though we are also very, very mortal. If we were to carry the personality idea of the spirit, however, into every passage of scripture, which used the word spirit, we would very quickly come to a problem. So we have this idea of spirit, and the spirit is a personal, spiritual being, a being that has intelligence, emotions, and will, a being that interacts with the material world at times, also interacts in the spiritual realm. That is a spirit. But if you were to take that definition of spirit and you were to carry it into every interaction or instance in the Bible, you might get a little bit confused. Because there are oftentimes interaction with spirits that don't seem to have a personality to them. There are times where It's obvious we see interactions with spirits such as angels, the Godhead. These spirits question, uh, uh, they they question people, they interact with people, they question one another, they interact, they feel, they understand in much the same way that two humans might interact or feel or understand. These spirits are obviously not bound by the material world. They don't need to eat. They don't need to sleep. They might appear in some material form but not bound by the limitations of material things but they act as persons. And we've talked through those a little bit. When the angel of the Lord interacted with men in the Old Testament, we've talked through that already. When Daniel interacts with the angel Gabriel in Daniel's chapter 8 and 9, when Gabriel interacts with Zechariah in, in Luke chapter 1, we see the same thing. They are interacting with one another. They are reasoning with each other, answering questions, refusing requests, expressing limitations. In Jude, I mentioned already, we read of Michael the archangel as he's contending with Satan over the body of Moses. These are two spiritual beings, personal spiritual beings, that are arguing over the fate of a material body. When Jesus and his disciples walked upon the earth, they interacted with men and women who were possessed with demonic spirits. We recognize that those spirits were able to speak, were able to interact, were able to understand, not the person, but the spirit that was in the person. They would interact with them. They would reason with them. Uh, These spirits were um, unbound by a material body per se, save the one that they were possessing. They could indwell that material body They could speak through that material body 
And while, again, we would understand these spirits to be generally unbound from the demands of the material world, this does not mean that they do not have divine limit, defined limitations as it relates to being a spiritual, personal entity. They could be in one physical location at a time. They couldn't split themselves up into multiple locations. They were limited in knowledge and intelligence and so on. They are personal, individual beings. And so, as we consider this biblical concept of spirit, this first category would be used to describe personal beings. Intelligent beings, emotional beings, volitional beings, beings who exist outside of the material world but are very much a singular entity. Well, then we come to our second category here. Second category of spirit. And I define this as an unseen force which exists itself excuse me, which exerts itself upon the material world. There are a number of times in the Word of God where it would appear that reference to a spirit does not reflect the characteristics of a personal being. It presents itself instead more as a generalized force. We might call it an emotion uh, that would come upon or, uh, or, or move past or through a person. Not necessarily a discretionary force or a reckoning force. Not necessarily directed by a personal being enlivening that force. But rather a force that is unseen but obviously exists and exerts itself upon some element of the material world. So that the manifestation of this spirit or the use of this term spirit is not personal. But more, I'll use the word ethereal or subjective. A nondescript force which is nevertheless potent and influential in its own right. It's even perhaps driven by some spiritual being, but it in itself is not a product of that spiritual person, but rather maybe a derivative of of that person. So this one's a little bit harder to define with the... I, I, was, I was fairly general as it related to the idea of spirit as a person. I could have gone to a bunch of scriptures. I chose not to do so uh, for the sake of time. However, uh, in, in this more subjective way, I need to take you to the scriptures to think through this with you. So in Numbers chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, we read this. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and he and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witnesses against her, neither she be taken uh, with the manner. And the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be, uh, de- and she be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled... Um, excuse me. Yep. So, so we, we stop there. It, it gets the point. And then it goes on to give the prescriptions as to what to do. Here we have a scenario given in the law of Moses where a woman has been unfaithful to her husband and that secretly. And for whatever reason, her husband becomes concerned about her faithfulness and he is driven into an emotional state called jealousy. Now, jealousy is an emotional state whereby a person becomes emotionally compelled to guard his exclusivity to something that he believes belongs to him. Jealousy is a sin when the thing that I am attempting to guard for myself, I do not have the right to guard exclusively. 
Jealousy is not a sin in every case. We see that the Lord gets jealous. The Bible says that the Spirit of God is jealous over the children of God, that He desires our exclusivity. And the reason why it's not a sin, other than the fact that God is doing it, is because God has every right to be jealous over the exclusivity of His children. So it is not always a sin to be jealous. It is a sin to be jealous when I, am, uh, I, am, I desire or I, I guard the exclusivity of something that I do not have the right to guard, that is not mine exclusively by right. Jealousy is perfectly righteous when, in fact, that thing is mine exclusively. So in this case, uh, a husband being jealous over his wife's exclusivity in the physical relationship is something which is actually his by right. He has the right to be jealous over this exclusivity of relationship. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that a husband has the right to um, be jealous over his wife in every, in every case, right? The idea that he is demanding her exclusive attention at the expense of friends, at the expense of family, those sorts of things, that is not righteous jealousy. But in this area of life, the husband has the right to this thing exclusively. And the unique privilege of marriage, uh, the unique privileges of the marriage relationship are intended by God to be exclusive. It is not a sin thus for the husband or wife to be jealous over these unique privileges for their spouse. A sinful jealousy is rooted when a man or a woman overextends their understanding of their privileges in marriage, demands those of their spouse, or unjustly holds their spouse to unreasonable suspicions. But in this scenario, in Numbers chapter 5, the jealousy would be, if you will, a just jealousy. But more to the point, notice how it's described. It is described as a spirit of jealousy. Now, this is the same Hebrew word here. A spirit of jealousy. It's the same Hebrew word that we see when we're talking about the Holy Spirit of God. It's the same Hebrew word that we see when we're talking about angels being spirits and ministers of God. It's the same word here, meaning wind or breath. But we would not expect there to actually be any sort of angelic or demonic Element that is resting upon this person who is jealous of another. When we say that he has the spirit of jealousy, there is not intended to be an implication here that there's some sort of personal spiritual being that has rested upon this man, but rather it's more like an emotional, uh, emotional idea, right? An unseen force that is exerting itself upon this man's mind or this man's body based upon his own intellect, emotions, and will. So this is a kind of spirit, a kind of spirit which is more ethereal, which is not based upon something exterior, but something more interior in this case. And we can go to passage after passage and carry forward this idea. When Jacob found out that his son Joseph was alive after so many years of thinking that he was dead, we read this in Genesis 45, verse 27. And they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. This is speaking of him, his own personal being, his personality, emotion, intelligence, and will being revived within him. So once again, we see this idea here in more of an unseen force sense, an emotional sense that though the spirit of a man is definitely a part of what gives a human personality, here we are reading about a general demeanor of Jacob, an unseen force resting upon his soul by way of his burdens and his sorrows being lifted when Jacob learns that his son 
was alive. Now, all of this being said, the question comes in, in that these are the same word, to what degree can we parse the spirit as a personal entity from a spirit as an unseen force? Well, remember, not too long ago in 1 Kings 22, in Sunday school, we started to kind of wrestle with these ideas. In that passage, we read of a very interesting interaction, Micaiah giving a vision uh, between God and his interaction with the hosts of heaven. And we read in 1 Kings 22, verses 19 through 23, and he said, Hear thou, for, thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. So here we have a scenario where we would most naturally, which we would most naturally expect to fall into what we'd say is the second category of spirit. We would expect this to fall into the category of an unseen force exerting itself through these prophets where these prophets decided to lie. And as they decide to lie to the king of Ahab, there are the natural things that happen, um, whether we want to talk about uh, the idea of their authority, where Ahab sees that these are authoritative prophets. They claim to represent God. Uh, they are charismatic. Uh, they're winsome. Uh, they have the ability to convince. And so they, through their ability to convince, lie to the king, and the king is, uh, is convinced of this lie. And so there is a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets. And that's how we would naturally interpret this. However, we find here in verse 21... And an interaction where a actual spirit, in the sense of that first idea, a personal spirit, a personal entity, stands before God and says, I will be a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets. This spirit is interacting with God, reasoning with God. It's a personal being. And when he says he would be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets, well, this gets a little more obscure. Is this personal spirit saying that he will interact with the material world in such a way as to bring about a compulsion to lie to the king? Or is this personal spirit saying that he would actually be that force, that he would actually, in a sense, indwell these false prophets and be that force, be that lie to the king? And there's some ambiguity there about which the Bible might intend as it relates to this concept of spirit. Because the line between the spirit as a force and God's use of spiritual agents as the agents of that force is not very clear in the Bible. But we know that both exist. We know that we cannot blame every emotional force or every uh, unseen movement upon some spiritual being. We can't simply say, well, I'm a really angry person. It's because the devil right? The devil made me do it. The devil is making me angry. I can't help it. The devil is here whispering in my ear. Well, maybe he is. I've dealt with that before at the jail. But that's not necessarily the way it always plays out. 
Sometimes it's just because you are choosing to be angry. You are yielding to maybe the spirit of the age. You're yielding to the spirit of, of, of the, the, the group that is around you and the, the spirit of the group that is around you. There is a jealous spirit. There is an angry spirit. There is a manipulative spirit that is in that group of people and you are a part of that group doing what they're doing and that, that can be the case as well. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's some demonic entity standing over all of you making you do these things. However, we also can't say in every case that that's not the case. Why? Because it's the same word. And the Bible did not see fit to distinguish between them. And so with all of this in mind, with all of these ideas having been laid out, let's think through what 1 John 4 verses 1 through 3 says. If you're still there, the Bible says this, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Now, as we read this, I've already drawn, I drew the connection early. We draw the connection to the concept of Antichrist from 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the Bible says, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby ye know that it is the last time. Skipping to verse 22. Who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. In 1 John 2, we talked about these two different Antichrist ideas. And we said that John takes note of the fact that the Antichrist shall come. And we know that this is speaking of the man, the promised man, the one that Thessalonians calls the son of perdition, the one that that, that is the man of sin, the one that is from Daniel, that little horn. And we know that this is speaking of the man Antichrist because that word in its original Greek has the article. It's articular, meaning that it's emphasizing identity. But then John says, even now there are many Antichrists. That is not supposed to mean that there are many people that uh, are that, that Antichrist that's promised. In this case, it does not have the article. It's emphasizing character or essence. So John is saying, you know that there is this guy called Antichrist who's coming, but even now there are many people who have the character of that man in them, who are living according to his rules even today, who have that same spirit within them of being anti-Christ. And as we use that word spirit, we're not saying that they are demonically possessed, We are saying that they carry the same mindset, the same outlook, the same worldview, the same desire to oppose Christ that will be found in that man who is coming one day who will seek to exalt himself above Christ. And that's the idea here. There is a spirit, an unseen force, a way of thinking, a determination, a choice, a worldview that compels many, which is the same unseen force which will come in that prophetic man one day, but which is already at work in the world. What 2 Thessalonians 2.7 calls the mystery of iniquity, which is already at work. It is not given way to the great apostasy, but its spirit is 
is working in individuals, in institutions, in cultures. The spirit of Antichrist. And as John warns in chapter 4 not to believe every spirit, we could find in much the same way both attributes of spirit could fit well into this verse that we've talked about. The idea, first, that there's a personal being which could manifest itself and claim authority, but deny the person and work of Jesus Christ, we, we can see that. We would even believe that as it relates to various cults. We think of that as it relates to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Their original self-proclaimed prophet uh, believes that he got his revelations from an angel. I wouldn't doubt it. That he got his actual revelations from an angelic being, we would just believe him to be a fallen angel, a liar from the beginning. And so we can see that. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. But also, it is not difficult to see this in this idea, this warning of believe not every spirit, the concept of an unseen force which directs hearts and minds and actions away from the doctrines and person of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, to some other truth. And as it relates to what John is warning about in 1 John, these men who are getting up and who are saying these things that are not true, it seems apparent that that is what John is connecting this to. A spirit that would preach that you have never sinned. A spirit that is preached that you can both love God and love the world simultaneously without contradiction. A spirit that would teach that you can reject the brethren but be right with God. These are not necessarily personal, physical entities that will be standing in anybody's house telling them these things. It might very well rather be a doctrine that comes into your house, maybe through someone's voice, maybe through a book, whatever it might be, but a doctrine that would drive itself into your heart or or mind through a, a, a compulsion of its own, not necessarily through a personal spirit. But both of these could be the spirit of Antichrist. Now, if you actually have your King James Bible with you this evening, you will notice that the idea of spirit there in verse 3, where the Bible says, this is the spirit of Antichrist is in italics. And what we know when we see a, a word in our King James Bibles that is in italics is that that word is not found in the original Greek text, which means that when the King James translators were translating John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, they were making an interpretive decision to connect Antichrist to a spirit. And I think that that's a a good interpretive addition because the warning is against the false spirits that have gone into the world. And then he says that those spirits are that of Antichrist. So adding the word spirit there is entirely acceptable, and I don't think that we need to have a problem with it. I believe we can talk about the spirit of Antichrist, and that's a very valid doctrinal idea, that there is a spirit of teaching, a spirit of an age, a spirit of entertainment, a spirit of attitude and of outlook that would seek to direct people into a way of thinking or into a way of feeling that can either be in agreement with Christ or can be anti-Christ. And of course, those things can certainly be propelled through some 
personal agent, some demonic influence over people or over, over even cultures. But it's entirely within the, the scope of the word spirit for us to see it simply as an emotional or as a, I'll use the word, spiritual force that can come over people as well. Now, next time we are together, we're going to consider the warning itself, the nature of this warning to try the spirits, whether they be of God. What does it mean for a spirit to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? How literal is that idea? Are we talking about personal spirits there? How do we try the spirits? But for today, as I said, this is kind of the last stop, right? This is the last turn off before the toll road. We are going to be working through this idea of trying the spirits, whether they be of God. And this idea of trying the spirits, whether they be of God, is something that will, will take a certain disposition, a certain amount of discernment. But none of it is going to work unless you've already kind of settled the things that have come before. For today, this is what I want you to think on as we have tried to parse out this idea of spirits. There are unseen forces at work in this world. Some of these might have their origin in an actual personal being who has been given leave or authority to impose himself upon the material world and work. Demons are at work in this world. Satan is at work in this world. They are personal beings. They are entities. They are at work doing things. Others of these spirits that are at work in this world are simply unseen forces which come over people, groups of people, societies, and cultures that have a, a, a material effect upon their emotions, their understanding, their outlook, their direction. You can call it peer pressure. You can call it implicit bias. You can call it whatever you want. But those things are at work in this world as well, right? There are things where people feel pressure to do or not to do, to think or not to think, to go or not to go, not necessarily based upon some sort of demonic influence, but simply based upon the way humans are. That, that emotional ideas uh, can, can overflow a culture or a family and can direct us in one way or another. And while we may not understand all the ins and the outs of how these things work, we are fools if we choose to ignore their existence. And we talk about this in many ways. We might talk about a person who is depressed or who is angry. And this is to be distinguished from someone who gets angry or gets or is sad, there is a spirit that is working in some people, a spirit that is putting them into a different state of mind or of body, that there is something over them. Again, whether that's a personal entity, which can happen, or whether that simply be that they have fallen into this place where they cannot dig themselves out of darkness, there can be a spirit that comes over people. There's something compelling that disposition. We talk about the character of certain people groups. Uh, I talked about, was it, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, the idea of spirit as it relates to different generations. We've talked about the spirit, I, I, I oftentimes use the example of the spirit of millennials, that millennials are a certain group of people that were raised by, a, 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 by, by, by the generation previous, and there is a spirit that millennials carry with them. That spirit is, among other things, a spirit that values authenticity. This is a spirit which infects, uh, 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 maybe infects, certainly affects the entire generation. It's like the air that they breathe. 
brought on by the spirit and the choices and the mistakes of the generation that raised them, brought on by major things that happened within the scope of their time. Millennials were in high school, generally speaking, junior high and high school during 9-11, and they got to see what happened in 9-11 and in the aftermath with um, all of the things that happened in government, and that perhaps affected the way that they think of authority, the way that they think of governments. There's a spirit that can be inculcated in a particular culture based upon the event that happen within that culture and within the history of that culture. And so these spirits can rest upon entire generations of people. And we may have to combat it or we may see it and be able to harness it, otherwise properly relate ourselves to it. Some understand it, some don't understand it, but we're all living under it to some degree or another. But there is a direction that entire generations even can be compelled unto. And yet we are compelled as well to try that spirit, whether it is of God. And we've already been given the insight into how to do such things. That when we come to the spirit, we might say the spirit of the age. Since 2020, our culture has, been, has had an angry spirit resting over it. You notice that? People are angry. People are fearful. This makes them even more angry. There is an angry spirit. Now, can we say that this is a demonic entity? We can probably say the demons have something to do with it. I'm sure that they're busy about the work. But can we say that the whole thing is about a demonic entity? Or can we say that there was a spirit that, that, that people were primed because they had been shut up in their homes and they didn't have anywhere to go and they couldn't go anywhere and they were confused and then crazy things happened and it was manipulated by people who had ulterior motives to bring about a spirit of anger in a culture and in some senses even the world. But then we try that spirit. We say there is a spirit that is overwhelming a culture. What do we do with that spirit? Do we get on board with it? Do we affirm it? Do we go in a different direction? Do we fight against it? And the question is, is it of God, right? And again, a spirit in a family. There's, there, there are various families that have a different spirit about them. Whether that, that spirit be a good spirit, a generous spirit, a, a servant spirit, or a bad spirit, right? A manipulative spirit, a jealous spirit, an angry spirit. There are certain people groups, there are certain generations, there are certain things that carry with them a spirit. And we are called to try these spirits, whether they are of God. We're not talking in most of these cases, in this sense, of demonic entities. We are talking about a general direction a general emotion, an unseen force that is moving among a group of people based upon the, the, the choices and directions that they are, are going. And we, as I said, have already been equipped in 1 John with that knowledge necessary to try the spirits to know whether they are of God. And we read about that as well in 1 John 2. Jesus, uh, John says in 1 John 2, verses 26 and 27, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Right? These are the, the spirit of Antichrist. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but, the same, but as the same anointing teacheth, teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. 
So how is it, what is it that God has given to us by which we are able to try the spirits, by which we are able to know whether the spirit of a family or a people group or, 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 or of a culture or of an age or of a time is right before God, whether the spirit of someone individually, their teaching is right before God. Well, we have been given a spirit too. And this is a personal spirit. This is the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, a definite personal being. And he, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, indwells you. And if you abide in Christ and so walk in the Spirit of God, that Spirit of God renews your mind, directs your intellect, your emotion, and your will, not only to obedience to the Bible, but also to discernment of other spirits. Personal and ethereal. Any spirit that is competing with the spirit of truth, that is the Holy Spirit of God who indwells you. And this is the foundation that we need in order to understand what we're about to go through in 1 John 4. He's going to say, try the spirits, whether they be of God. What do you need to be able to, where do you need to be to be equipped to properly try the spirit of God? You need to be right with, uh, excuse me, to try the spirits that are in the world. In order to, be, to try the spirits that are in the world, you need to be rightly related to the spirit of God. And this is why I say this is kind of the final turn before we move into this. The spirit of God cannot give you that discernment that you would desire to have when you are walking in darkness. If you are not keeping Christ's commandments, loving the brethren, if you're walking in sin and selfishness, if you're living in a love for the things of the world, again, that doesn't mean that you love, that, 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 that you enjoy the, the thing, your house and, and, and your car or whatever. It means the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. If you're living in this love for the world, if you're walking in sin and selfishness, you are abiding in darkness, you cannot see the truth, you cannot be guided by the Spirit of God, and you will not be able to properly discern the spirits. Try the spirits, whether they are of God. And if you are not able to properly discern the spirit because you're walking in darkness and not in light, this will make you susceptible to the errors and the lies that are floating around in the world around us. It will deny you the necessary reference point to be able to navigate all of the truth claims that surround us. But John has taught the formula for correction in this book. If you are in that place of sin against God, maybe it's living in lies, living in lust, living in rebellion, living in pride, living in selfishness. Not only is it wrong, I say not only is it wrong, but Christian, as we consider the idea that there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world, and that those false prophets, by spirits, either personal or, or simply ethereal, those false prophets are attempting to draw you into something. You cannot afford not to be right with God. Because if you're not right with God, then you will not be able to properly try the spirit, whether it is of God. In a world filled with lying spirits, and by the way, with the internet being as the internet is, your access to lying spirits is greater than it's ever been probably in the history of history. You cannot afford to be walking in darkness. 
And that's kind of that last turnoff that I'm talking about. You have, we're going to walk through this idea of trying the spirits. And of course, there's always room for, for these things later. But if you've been sitting on the fence, if you've been saying, well, these are really interesting ideas, Pastor, and yeah, I know I've got these problems, but I'll get around to it. I'll, 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 I'll commit these things to the Lord at some point. I, I know I'm, I'm living in a love for the world, but I don't really want to give it up yet. And so I, it's good that I've got this information, but you know, I'm just going to sit in my love for the world a little longer. Or, Pastor, you know, I, I, I get it. I'm not really esteeming the brethren. I've got other priorities in life. And I, I recognize that that means I'm not quite right with God. But, you know, I'll get there. I see that that's, that's where I am. And at least I see it, right? So I'll get there when I get there. And I'll, I'll, I'll fix it later. And maybe you've been in that place for a little while as we've walked through this series. But now we're coming to a point of, of next level spiritual interaction where we're going to be called on to try the spirits, whether they are of God. We're going to be taught how to do that. None of that can be done if you're not right with the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God is our source, is our teacher, is the, is the standard that we will hold all other spirits against. The Spirit of truth is what we compare the other spirits unto. But if I'm walking in darkness and I don't have the spirit of truth commending himself to my heart, I am not going to be properly positioned to discern right and wrong the way that we are called to. And so I am susceptible to falling under these false spirits. And so as we continue to walk backward, we've spent time in 1 John 2, we come back to 1 John 1. That's the solution, right? If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May I encourage each of you today, if you're a believer and the Spirit of God has laid upon your heart something throughout this series that you're still wrestling with and, and you're, you're deciding, am I going to give in to, to, to the Lord on this one? Am I going to yield to this conviction? Am I, do, do you have that closet of your heart that you're still holding on to and saying, God, you get all the rest of this, but I've shoved all of my stuff into that closet and that closet's for me and you can't have that closet. That's my closet. You can have the rest of this, but you can't have that. If, you, if you've been in that place and you're wrestling with that thing, this would be a really, really great week for you to just clean out that closet for the Lord. This would be a really, really great week for you to set those things on the altar, confess your sin to him and say, God, I want to be in a place that as we're learning about trying the spirits, whether they be of God, because there are these spirits of God and there's these spirits of Antichrist and many false prophets have gone out into the world and I want to be able to relate myself properly to truth. This would be a really great time for you to make sure that you are related properly to the spirit of truth so that you can then be related properly to truth. And that's all I'm asking of you tonight. In Psalm 139, the psalmist wrote, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm not going to uh, have any sort of a, a, a startling application this evening or anything of the sort. I'm not going to push you into anything new. I'm going to push you to make sure that the thing that we've been talking about this whole time, that you're there, that you've, that, that you've yielded. And I hope that every single person in here walks away saying, wow, that was not a very relevant message to me because that means that you're there and that's good. But if you're not there, if you're not quite there yet, if you've been holding back, if you've been keeping something from the Lord, if you've been wrestling with whether or not you're going to give that thing to the Lord, may I encourage you tonight, kind of that last stop before we get on this next train of discerning the spirits of God, that you would this 
week that you would tonight confess that sin, forsake that sin, allow God to cleanse you, and in doing so, you will be reconciled to and brought into fellowship with the Spirit of God so that you will be equipped to see with eyes of discernment what the Spirit's are doing in this world. And then you can try those spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.